Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. It's weird to be saying this, as this year has been a heck of a roller coaster, but we are now officially entering the holiday season, which means in previous years, people's health goals get shoved under the table. You know, the table that is full of cookies, pies, and other holiday treats. And while I'm not really sure what this holiday season will look like, history shows us that there is one thing on everyone's minds once January comes around. Weight loss. Weight loss is one of the hardest things to do, especially with temptations around every corner. But this episode will help you with that. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today, I have Dr. Lydia C. Alexander of the Obesity Medicine Association joining me to talk about strategies to help reduce weight. Before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a quick rating and review on your podcast player. Those reviews help to keep the show going and gets it in front of more people. And we'll be talking about the pillars for successful weight loss today. So let's jump into the conversation. Dr. Lydia C. Alexander practices obesity medicine as part of the Kaiser Permanente Medical Weight Management Group in San Francisco, California. She is passionate about the practice of obesity medicine and committed to educating primary care providers about the benefits of taking a weight-centric approach when addressing chronic diseases. Thank you for coming on to the show, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Of course, and I'm excited to chat with you more about obesity. But before we uh, get started with that, let's learn a little bit more about you because I know there's a lot that you're involved in down there in San Francisco. So give us kind of a brief overview of who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am uh, in a, well, I'm, I'm board certified, first of all, in internal medicine. So I'm a physician who specializes in that. That's adults. And I trained at UC Davis School of Medicine here nearby. And uh, and now I uh, have, am part of a subspecialty that's, uh, that's growing by leaps and bounds called obesity medicine. And I was board certified in that in 2015. It's, uh, it's a new field that I believe began certifying physicians in 2012. And this year, he hit a record high uh, uh, in, in terms of people who uh, sat for the exam. It was over 1,000 physicians. And we now have, I, I think the last number was 4,152 uh, physicians uh, certified in this. So it's, uh, the numbers are growing and will probably uh, uh, exceed the, the total number of endocrinologists in our entire country in, in a, uh, by next year is my guess. Which is pretty interesting because that's also an indication that obesity is becoming more and more of a problem. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. That's right. It's uh, I think of it as the uh, probably the the you know the what is the word I'm looking for? Kind of like the uh, you know the basis for many of the different chronic diseases that we routinely treat in uh, in internal medicine. And what? What's the technicalities around obesity? What defines it? Um, so what defines obesity from, uh, you know, in a, in a very, I guess, uh, in a very simplistic approach is, is uh, having a body mass index, a BMI, uh, which is kilograms per meter squared for those uh, who would like to know that it's above 30. And, uh, and then we uh, classify that into three different categories. So th uh, uh, there's class one, which is that very beginning uh, point, then class two and class three. And above a BMI over 
40 is now considered uh, severe obesity or class three obesity. Um, and, and within all of that, BMI doesn't really tell the full picture because I do mention from time to time that, uh, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a BMI of 37 in his heyday when he was Mr. Universe. And so uh, no one certainly would have told him or said that he was unhealthy necessarily and had obesity. So, uh, so also, uh, you know, body composition is very important in other uh, and other indicators of, uh, of health uh, around the BMI. So it's really sort of the beginning point, but a really great uh, metric to use unless you're, you know, I guess two standard deviations out of your, uh, out of your comfort curve area. Uh, certainly based on BMI, uh, uh, about a third or a little more, uh, almost uh, 40% of our country uh, uh, has obesity uh, by those numbers. And if you include overweight, which is a BMI over 25, uh, three quarters, about 70% of the United States suffers from overweight or obesity. So it is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's more than a burgeoning field. I'm glad there are more specialists like me who are coming online because we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's a significant amount of people. So you're saying about 75% of the population in the States has, is overweight or obese. Uh, ba yeah, based on uh, based on the BMI numbers that I uh, that I've just given you, and in fact, uh, you know, not to sound you know not to sound dire, but those are based on Caucasian populations or European uh, European body types, uh, uh, Japanese uh, uh, BMI uh, numbers, as well as those from China and subcontinental India are actually lower. So if we were to consider, especially in my part of the United States here in uh, the the uh, uh, California and the Bay Area, where we have a larger Asian population, uh, BMIs for them, uh, overweight is considered starting at a BMI of 23. Uh, so so uh, that number kind of only gets bigger. And I think the last statistics I saw from CDC projections is that by, uh, by, the, by 2030, that 50% of the country uh, would have obesity by then. What's kind of the jump? Let's let's kind of break it down in a way that people can get more of a visual um, idea of what these BMI numbers would look like. So if you have like a hundred and fifty pound person that's I don't know five foot five, what would where would that be on that type of scale? So off the top of my head, that would probably fall in the overweight category. So if we look at men and women, there are slightly different calculations you can do. It's, it's usually easiest for me unless I, uh, I uh, take out my BMI calculator, which quite honestly, I often do because that's the line of work I'm in. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but if you think of, so I'm 5'5". Five five. And, uh, and so that's a good number to start with. And so for every one inch, if you add five pounds, uh, then my ideal body weight should be, uh, should be 125 by that measure. And so uh, my body weight still falls in the normal range until I have a BMI uh, 20, uh, at 25. And, uh, and so I could still go up to about 150, 160 and still be in the normal range uh, or right at the very beginning of overweight. And, uh, and so that, uh, and, and if I were to uh, have obesity as a five foot five woman, I would probably need to weigh around 170 or so. Okay. So that gives some indication of, of kind of the ranges we're talking about. And uh, BMI, think about between every seven to 10 pounds probably puts you in an in, uh, additional 
uh, you know, one kilogram per meter squared, uh, you know, depending on male, female, and, and where you are in those categories. And does uh, age get factored into this at all as well? No. So that's super interesting, too, because age uh, age doesn't play any part in BMI and where you should be in BMI. Um but we do know that as we get older, our body composition changes. And so, uh, you know, the body composition I had when, you know, I was 20 in college and an athlete is very, very different than the BMI range I have now, uh, you know, a couple of dec- decades later. So even if I'm the same weight, whether I'm in the healthy weight or the overweight or obesity, um, that number, the number on the scale and the body mass index don't tell the entire, you know, don't tell the entire picture. And again, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is, you know, one of those great examples to show that, uh, you know, your skeletal muscle mass and your uh, your your body fat percent can really change. And uh, and the number that first number is kind of like a just kind of quick and dirty indicator of, uh, you know, of of kind of you know, where you fall on, on that scale. And so this can be pr- uh, particularly, uh, you know, uh, important in, uh, in older adults, say over the age of 60 or 65, who, um, you know, maybe at a, you know, let's say a BMI of 26 and you think, well, they're overweight, but you know, it's okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, not so bad, could be, you know, could be better, could be worse. But if you were to do a body composition analysis uh, and the most common that we, uh, one that we use in, uh, as an, as in, in obesity medicine, as obesity specialists in our office are the uh, BIA, the body um, impotence uh, uh, tracking. And you probably have seen those where you stand on it. Some people have the home scale that'll do kind of a, um, you know, a rudimentary, uh, a, a rudimentary, prediction of what your percent body fat is and all that. I've got a fancy one even tells me my heart rate through my feet, but um, (laughs) it's kind of interesting. Uh, But anyway, you hold on to these, uh, these handles and uh, it runs some electric current through you. uh, And, uh, and then we'll tell you what is your, you know, your intracellular and extracellular water weight, your percent body fat, your skeletal muscle mass. And, um, and so the concern with older adults, especially if they're sedentary, which is uh, very easy to do these days in our, in our society, um, they, you know, it's not uncommon to see someone who has maybe 50 or 53% body fat. So half of them literally uh, as, uh, as body fat. And, uh, and so they're actually sort of sicker than you would, in a sense, sicker than you would predict uh, based on BMI only. Wow. Are you using the Embody machine? Is that the one that you uh, use? Yeah, we actually do use the Embody machine. Yeah, there are three or four on the market out there. We've got that one. Uh, I think the gold standard is DEXA, which is the same type of machine that's used uh, you know, for checking uh, uh, bone mass. And, uh, and so those tend to be uh, you know, pretty amazing, but they're also fairly, uh, fairly expensive and, and more for the purposes of research at this point. Right. Um, So, I mean, with 75% of the population that are, you know, overweight or obese, obviously the big question is, why is this happening? Right. Right. So this probably also leads uh, directly into a lot of the treatment options that you have. But what have you found to be some of these leading causes for this increase in obesity? 
Well, I think that when we uh, thinking about obesity, it's really uh, it's it's almost a I call them obesities. So there are so many different you know paths that you can follow to develop uh, you know an unhealthy uh, weight, body mass index, you know body composition, and you know if we look at society uh, you know a hundred years ago, and we look at uh, places in the world where uh, people tend to be healthier and healthier than we would predict given the quality of the healthcare there there. And I'm thinking about blue zones, for instance. Uh, you know, there's uh, you know Sardinia, there's a uh, Ikaria in Greece, and uh, Okinawa in Japan, and a few other places like that. Um, what we see is that uh, uh, what's changed dramatically on a population level is the there's the the level of activity uh, that we have, and then the quality of the food that we eat, and uh, and uh, and. And uh, sleep, for instance, our circadian rhythms have been, uh, you know, have been thrown off. So uh, that's also another uh, important area. Uh, I would say that uh, likely stress levels have uh, chronic stress levels as opposed to acute stress um, have changed. There are a number of factors, I think, if we were able to follow it over the last 100 or 150 years between electricity, uh, quality of the food, and, uh, and again, just physical movement. That um, that have dramatically uh, that have dramatically changed for uh, for societies as a whole, and uh, and for those of us who are more genetically predisposed uh, to have that, and there are some people who uh, do have more of a propensity to uh, to gain weight, and that was likely uh, you know. Uh, uh, a very good thing to have 10,000 years ago that you could retain your, you know, you could retain weight even through some type of famine or a few uh, days or weeks with uh, without a constant food source. It's uh, it, it's not as uh, as helpful any longer because food is no longer scarce. Let's go through um, all those different options that you uh, talked about and kind of break them down a little bit more. So if someone's coming to you and they're obese, they're probably... They probably are uncomfortable with movement in some form, right? They might mm -hmm. have some aches and pains. It just might not, you know, they might be out of breath really easy. They might not be comfortable with it. So what are some different ways to help them to increase their movement? Okay. So um, so I love the topic of physical activity uh, because because I love physical activity, uh, but also because they're, uh, so I, I like to break it down into five different categories. And, uh, and so uh, the first category that everybody knows about a lot is, you know, uh, is cardio. And, uh, and I think if I were to, you know, to skew and think about who likes to do cardio more, it's probably more the, the, uh, the female population who's, who's really into cardio. And then the second one is strength training. And strength training, also super important. And, uh, and these two are, are the, uh, you know, the forms of physical activity that we're most, accust you know, most accustomed to when we think about what we should be doing, uh, you know, using the word exercise. Um, beyond that, there's also balance. And there's flexibility training, and uh, and lastly, and my favorite one is called NEAT, um, and that's an acronym that stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. I, I mostly shorten the thermogenesis and just call it time. Uh, and so NEAT is is probably where I would start to some extent with a with a patient of mine who may be more sedentary and uh, and uh, you know. Uh, and is having, uh, you know, has does not have a history of having been physically active for some period of time. And what that means is just getting extra movement uh, throughout the day. So 
generally speaking, it's, you know, if you have some aches and pains and, and those sorts of things, uh, if you're carrying, uh, you know, more weight than may be comfortable, we want to be careful about, you know, joints and, you know, ligaments and tendons and not cause, uh, you know, any type of, you know, physical stress or damage with uh, suddenly changing uh, our behavior overnight. Uh, but we can focus on needs. We can also focus on balance and flexibility to increase, uh, you know, increase stability, increase movement uh, in a, um, you know, in a helpful way. And so, um, so those are three areas that I focus on, uh, depending on, you know, the level of ability. There are a lot of incredible chair exercises that you can do that, um, you know, even just, uh, you know, uh, sitting, you know, standing uh, outside off a chair and getting back in the chair and doing that a certain number of times throughout the day uh, within a workday can be really helpful uh, to, you know, to strengthen some of the muscles in terms of balance and flexibility. And it also engages a lot of our muscles is uh, uh, standing on one foot and, uh, and, and trying to see how long you can stand there. And you can make a game out of it to see, you know, can I make it five seconds, 10 seconds? How many seconds can I do? Probably want to have some type of stable like a wall or a door or something that's not going to move too much, uh, you know, for, um, you know, to, to help you get started with that. And then you can start to try to let go and see how long, uh, how long you can last. But that can really help our proprioception and engages the muscles. And it's a great way uh, to start with patients who have an extremely low level of physical activity. And the nice thing about NEAT is that if we think about 24 hours in a day, and let's say the ideal person, I know that's not a lot of us are getting eight hours of sleep. Now we've got 16 hours in the day to work with here. And, uh, you know, even if I were a, a, a very active person, I would probably, if I were, I, uh, which I'm trying to be again, would go to the gym and work out maybe 60 minutes. And if I got really good at it, maybe I would do 90 minutes and I would try to incorporate strength training, cardio, and some, you know, maybe some flexibility uh, training or whatnot, through, you know, every day during the week. And so that's just 90 minutes. And now we're left with all these other minutes and what can we do with that? Maybe you can't have that level of activity for more than an hour, an hour and a half. The average person would, uh, you know, probably not be able Able to sustain that, but needs you can do for a very long period of time, and um, and I think this is the activity going back to the blue zones uh, across the world is really the type of activity that is um, is noted to be occurring on a reproducible daily basis that we're just moving your body and you know for uh, you know for hours during the day, and so that could really help with uh, you know with maintaining muscle mass. Uh, and uh, and it can also help with uh, uh, with blood sugar regulation, uh, with blood pressure regulation, with uh, you know maintaining energy, um, decreasing uh, stress hormones because after all we are animals and we do like to move around and uh, and that feels good uh, increases endorphins. So there's a lot that meat can do for us, even though it just feels uh, like a. I don't know, maybe the meh, you know, category, but I think it's a really important category and one that I focus on a lot with my patients. So would an example of NEAT be like um, not parking in the very front of the parking lot, maybe parking further back and walking a little bit further to the grocery store or taking this uh, set of stairs instead of the elevator? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's all those little movements uh, like those. Um, it's, uh, you know, for instance, if... Um, 
you know, if I'm on the phone with my, you know, my brother, or my sister, you know, my sister-in-law, my mother, I might just get up and pace up and down, you know, repeatedly up and down the hallway while I'm talking to them on the phone. And I've been able to get, you know, easily 5,000 steps uh, from a good conversation, <laughs> um, you know, up and down the hallway there. And, uh, and it, you know, over time, it really makes a difference. Uh, for one of my, you know, life hacks, I would say, uh, trying to extend, because I know, you know, there are a lot of, you know, sedentary jobs out there. And as a physician, I do have one of those jobs. I need to be in front of the computer a lot, charting and answering emails. And uh, and now is, uh, in, in, you know, in my new position uh, at this medtech startup, I, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in front of a computer. So my life hack is to get neat uh, uh, by not only having a stand-up desk, but a treadmill desk. And so we got uh, one of those for our place of work and uh, kind of all share, uh, you know, or share uh, using that. Perfect. Yeah. So there's always little tweaks here and there that you can add to your environment to try and make uh, neat happen a little bit more often, just like the walking treadmill. Um, one thing you brought up multiple times is sleep and how, um, you know, not very many people are getting very adequate sleep. So do you have some really good ways to help people to try and get more sleep and more restful sleep? Yeah. So, uh, so I would say one of them would be, uh, would be neat. <laughs> um, and, uh, and uh, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, in strength training as well, there's a lot of little strength training tricks that you can do. Uh, again, these exercises and, uh, and, uh, you know, suggestions are for, for people who have been at baseline extremely sedentary for long periods of time and, uh, and have obesity, but, uh, you know, marching in place doing, uh, I, I call it like marching, marching sit-ups, uh, can uh, can can uh, you know can activate many different muscles in our body, including our core. Uh, doing wall push-ups uh, can be uh, can be really really helpful. And so when we engage different muscles in our body that way, and we use uh, ourselves physically, uh, it really uh, because it reduces uh, some stress hormones, uh, especially cortisol, and increases uh, you know endorphins over time. It uh, it can really help modulators you know uh, in, in, improve. Uh, improve sleep. Uh, I would also say that, uh, you know, uh, trying to adhere a little more to um, kind of like natural circadian rhythms. We, I know we know that we do have, you know, early birds and later people, uh, you know, out there and there, you know, there's some extremes uh, there, but for, for many people, um, you know, trying to, to, uh, to keep a, you know, a reproducible sleep pattern during the week and the weekends, um, uh, you know, many studies will show that, Outside of these outlier populations, the lark and the night owl, that many people fall kind of, you know, squarely more in the middle. And and I think for many of us, we've noticed that feeling now that there's, you know, there's light all the time. We have our computer screens, and so we don't get those same, uh, you know, you know, outdoor nature cues uh, about when, you know, when to start getting ready, you know, to wake up or go to sleep. Uh, many of us, I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, uh, but maybe around 8 p.m. at night, if you're putting the kids to bed and you kind of feel tired, and you're just like, oh, I'm exhausted. I, you know, I, I'm going to. I'm going to crawl with the kids or I, I'd like to go to bed myself right now. And then somewhere around, 
you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half after that, you get your second wind and are getting some of your best work done from, you know, from 10 p.m. until midnight. And if you stretch out, it's 1 a.m. And, uh, you know, and uh, you might be off to the races there for some of us. And uh, but you still have to wake up for, you know, for work, most likely, or for kids yet again um, early in the morning. And so that signal that's happening around 8 p.m. is actually our, our body's natural rhythm where it saw the sunset. Uh, well, not today, uh, not yesterday here because of the fires, but it saw the sun set and, uh, and, and your, your melatonin is coming up. And so you're getting ready for bedtime. And because we're all turning on the lights, looking at our computer screens and, uh, and whatnot, we're able to, um, uh, to kind of bypass that and start all over again. So um, if you have a sleep deficit during the week and then you go into the weekend, can you actually play catch up on your sleep over two days and then go back into a deficit or does that not work? So uh, that's a very interesting question that I debated with my son just last week. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's uh, who's 17 and, and wanted to know, uh, you know, could he catch up on sleep? He heard he couldn't. He was a little disappointed about that. And so um it, 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 so I guess they, it, it's kind of a tricky answer because uh, there have been studies out there that show you can't really. So if I'm if I'm sleep depriving myself for um, maybe for weeks at a time, getting six hours of sleep, I know that I'm squarely an eight hour person. I don't you know, I, I, six hours is not enough for me. Um, can I um, can I catch up? on all that sleep? And the answer is no, you can't really catch up on all that sleep. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's gone. Uh, and there might be some, you know, there, there's some health, uh, you know, ramifications to that. Um, but you, uh, but you, on some level can catch up on, uh, on sleep, uh, you know, over the last few days, so to speak. So, um, so you can refresh yourself by, you know, and, and we all notice that if, if uh, you know, if the timing is right and the house is quiet, that, you know, we will get nine or 10 hours of sleep and be passed out after a hard, hard week at work or, or whatnot. So, um, so yeah, you, you will do that to some extent, but, um, but not fully. And now you were talking about um, some neat activities will help with sleep. If you are doing something that increases heart rate right before bed, is that going to uh, spike you up and keep you awake or is it going to help you pass out? Uh, for most people, uh, that is going to probably, uh, you know, take a little bit of time for you to, um, you know, to, you know, to come back down to relax and, uh, you know, and to get into a sleep routine. There are some people certainly who can do that. Again, they're always outliers, but for the general population, uh, planning physical activity uh, at, at least two or three hours away from bedtime is is usually a, a good idea. Uh, and I when I specifically am thinking of strength training and certainly cardio, uh, when it comes to NEAT, I, I think, again, it's a it's a beautiful thing because you could do it any time and, uh, and it's only going to make you feel, uh, you know, feel better. Uh, you know, to some extent. So, you know, that taking a stroll after dinner is not only going to lower your blood sugar and uh, maybe give you some time to reflect, which also feels great, uh, but is uh, is probably going to help uh, help with sleep as well. So that one would be, I would say, is okay. And then you also brought up stress as a contributor to um, weight gain and obesity. 
how can we, first off, how can we regulate stress? And then that second, how can we regulate super stressful periods that come out of the blue that we aren't prepared for, like right now? <laughs> um, so, so you know, like the, I'm going to take the latter first. And I think in some ways, uh, the human, you know, the human condition, uh, you know, again, we're animals, we're mammals, and uh, and we have certain survival instincts. And that's what the, the hormone I've mentioned a couple times right now, cortisol, in some ways is all about. So when there's an acute, uh, an acute stressor, uh, and for, you know, for us here, for me here uh, in, uh, in Northern California, it's, it's the, it, you know, in addition to coronavirus, it is now the California wildfires and the air quality and, uh, and the stress around that, not knowing when it's going to go away and, um, and trying to, um, you know, to, to stay indoors and stay healthy. So these types of acute stressors and maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a sudden, you know, uh, you know, your, uh, I don't know, the, your, your, it, something catches on fire. I hate to use that one because I just talked about wildfires, but, uh, you know, there's some acute stressor or you need to, uh, you know, uh, your child, you know, falls down and, and you're, you know, you're acutely stressed out and you run over there to make sure they're okay. Um, and so that fight or flight mechanism is, um, has been has been engineered into humans for a very 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 long time, and that type of stress is actually very very manageable. And they've done studies in uh, um, uh, you know in in uh, you know babies in utero that have shown that this is actually a very healthy thing to have a little bit of that stress come up, come down, come up, come down um, through time. It's really the chronic stress that we're experiencing. Uh, you know, now five or six months into coronavirus, these fires have been going on for three three weeks and probably are going to go on longer. I know Australia had the huge fires in January that went on for uh, for many, many weeks. These sort of chronic stressors like that um, are, are very, very different because now we're percolating in our cortisol over long periods of time and we're, we're really not designed to do that. And so that type of stress is a stress that we, um, you know, that we're trying to avoid. The acute stressors and these people are, uh, you know, are, are not what does it for us, but it's the, um, it's, it's the long-term effects of, uh, of elevated cortisol levels. And, um, and, for, uh, and, and those are really the most detrimental. And, and we do spend a lot of time talking with our patients around what are some ways that you can, um, uh, you know, you can moderate that throughout your day. There are a whole bunch of uh, apps now on, uh, on our iPhones and that's kind of good and kind of bad because now you're back on your iPhone or your, you know, whatever is your, you know, your, your PDA device. It's like a mini computer that can help, uh, you know, breathe and um, uh, fizz is, is great for, for sleep and a few other ones. But those, um, you know, those can be very, very helpful. Um, you know, different habits such as journaling uh, can be great. And, um, and again, I think, uh, you know, physical activity can also play a part. And then um, you also talked about food. You talked about um, different qualities of food uh, around the world, especially in those blue zones. So we know that we have easy access to uh, processed foods and fast foods here. And a lot of people, you know, that's kind of all they know. And in a lot of communities, especially lower income, um, that's what they can afford. So how can people start to transition from fast food, processed foods, and start making a change to a little bit healthier quality of food? 
Um, that's that's a super interesting and, and complicated question uh, because you know I, you know in an ideal world I would say you know you should learn to cook and uh, you know and uh, and source everything organically and at the farmers market and um, you know and have a broad, wide variety of you know of all the good stuff in uh, you know in, in daily life you've got maybe a family you have work commitments uh, you have limited resources and certainly limited time how do you do all that um, and uh, you know the uh, Part of it, I think, is is uh, planning ahead and strategizing. And so, one of the things that uh, we're working on here at Anara Health is uh, is putting together um, the you know these virtual grocery tours, and uh, and not just any old grocery store. We're we're uh, putting together, for instance, you know five. Uh, you know, five foods under four dollars at Seven Eleven. And so, what can you, you know, what could you do if you're in a pinch, uh, um, and you know, and you're near Seven Eleven or a convenience store? What is actually, you know, a good grab and go or a better option? Uh, because I think if we are going to try to solve for perfection, uh, that might be the enemy of good enough. So, uh, you know, so we're trying to meet people where they are, um, uh, figure out some low hanging fruit where we can make progress. And uh, and move forward from there. So I guess that's my first, you know, piece of advice is that it's not necessary um, to be perfect. I just pick one one goal uh, and um, and work from that. Sometimes it's it can be you know breakfast can be maybe the the simplest you know uh, uh, place to begin and to try to make some helpful changes there. Um, uh, cooking. Uh, you know, uh, and, and meal planning perhaps on a Sunday and making uh, some, you know, and incorporating some uh, intentional repetition throughout the week and maybe, you know, warning your family that you're going to do that uh, can be another uh, another way to uh, to to uh, get some, you know, some healthy eating in there, repurposing foods. So, uh, you know, you might start out with a rotisserie chicken on Sunday uh, and it becomes uh, chicken fried rice on on monday and whatever's left over uh ends up in you know in your lunchbox on tuesday um are some 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 good ways to go about that i'm so glad that you mentioned meeting someone where they are at because i'm sure you've seen it before where um someone gets this diet plan and it's completely opposite of what they've ever eaten in their entire life and they're really excited about it but they can't follow it because it's just so difficult to make that that big of a change. So the fact that you're talking about, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect right out of the gate. All you need to do is make a little tiny change and change the idea around the food that they're choosing from in the same places that they might be going is going to get them so much further with making those dietary changes. And that I think that's probably the, you know, some of the the most important advice because I you know, we're I, each each one of us is our own toughest critic, and we you know we're very you know it, it, we tend to be very kind of you know self critical, and I think I, most people I, I know and me tend to fall into that category, and um, 
And so you can end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater when, you know, when uh, these small changes were actually making uh, big differences. And so I'd like to look at, you know, not only the physical activity and the need I mentioned, but also uh, food and nutrition in, uh, in that same, in that same way. And maybe over time, it starts to become more fun. It starts to become more interesting. The more you think about it, uh, you may come up with your own, you know, food hacks that are going to work super, you know, super great for you. Um, I, I have one where I, uh, you know, tend to, uh, you know, make a, a like a, a, a quiche, but without the, I'm too lazy to try to make a pie crust or even to know which one I should be buying, but I will, you know, make some type of like a frittata type thing, but I'll, I'll put it into muffin cups and, uh, and then I'll freeze those. So I can just pop those out and, uh, you know, and eat them throughout the week, uh, grab it, you know, grab it to go. There are a bunch of, uh, you know, great options at, at Trader Joe's that don't involve uh, that don't involve a lot of meal prep, like those French lentils and a few other, um, you know, a, a few other, uh, you know, great, great, um, you know, great, great uh, parts of meals there that you can put together and, um, and and use throughout the week. Now, Lydia, is there any other um... Uh, kind of pillars there that I missed. We covered food, we covered movement, sleep, and stress. Was there a fifth one, or was it four? Yeah. So the um, so in in obesity medicine, the uh, there are four major pillars, and I would say with uh, and then kind of like a fifth offshoot. And it was, so when we treat uh, a, a, you know a patient comes to see me, for instance, uh, as the obesity specialist, I, I very much do think of physical activity in all those five components that I mentioned. I think about uh, I think about nutrition, and not just in terms of the macronutrients, the you know the ones that we all know, the protein, fat, and carbohydrates. But I think of the quality of, uh, of of the food that that's eaten, and uh, and and try to um, understand and again meet the you know patient where they are because we do their you know ultra processed foods do cause uh, you know do cause metabolic imbalance, and um, and then the third one would be behavioral modification. And, uh, and that kind of, you know, when you're changing nutrition and physical activity, in a sense, you are already engaging in behavioral modification. So that, uh, you know, that's definitely a, a component there. And behavioral modification is almost in some ways a, an umbrella around sleep, around stress, around all of these different um, factors. And, uh, and so that's the third pillar. And then the fourth one is actually um, uh, medication management. And, and, uh, and so there are, you know, we call them AOMs uh, in our, uh, you know, uh, in our lingo, but uh, anti-obesity medications and then also weight gain medications. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of blood pressure issues out there, cholesterol, uh, depression and so forth. And many of these medications are also associated with weight gain. Uh, some sleep medications can also be associated with weight gain. And it's not something that is, uh, you know, uh, always that obvious uh, to uh, to a non-physician and especially a non-obesity specialist. This is some of the stuff we think about all the time. And so we'll discuss medication management and anti-obesity medications. And then the fifth kind of offshoot, which is, uh, you know, uh, is surgical. And so while this isn't something that as internist I would do, but it is kind of in my toolbox that I'm thinking, uh, when might this be uh, an appropriate referral for my patient? Perfect. Well, is there any final things that you want to touch on with obesity medicine before we wrap up here? Um, let's see. Well, I would say that um, 
it is, I, I, you know, if you're, you know, considering, uh, you know, a career in medicine, whether as a, you know, a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, uh, a registered dietitian or any of that, consider this field. Uh, it's an absolutely uh, amazing, you know, amazing place where we reverse uh, diabetes, we reverse, uh, you know, uh, uh, hypertension. And, uh, and I, I liken it to being sort of the labor and delivery uh, of adult medicine. And I feel really fortunate fortunate to, uh, to be working with the Obesity Medicine Association on a national uh, scale to, um, you know, to be able to educate and mentor, uh, you know, to mentor others and, uh, and then also, uh, you know, uh, teach my patients, uh, you know, about, about this kind of healthy living. Because when we, I always say when we treat the roots, um, of which are obesity, then, uh, uh, that's a better place to be than treating the fruit. So we're not playing whack-a-mole with blood pressure and with uh, blood sugar. If we're treating the and sleep apnea and all the different joint issues, when we treat um, toward a healthier weight, uh, the um, uh, the improvements we see are all across the spectrum, and that's uh, and that's super exciting. And the transformations that happen both for the uh, patient and the clinician is just absolutely amazing to see that transformation happen as well. It is. It's like the labor and delivery of adult medicine, yep, <laughs> I feel, exactly. is what the, the specialty that I'm in. Um, well, my final question for you is, what do you do each day to improve your own health? Well... I, uh, you know, I do, uh, you know, have my, uh, you know, my meat that I'm always trying to get in, my treadmill desk, uh, and and so forth. Um, other things I uh, I try to do is is uh, is spend time, uh, you know, with my community, and so that's my family, uh, you know, my my friends, and uh, and try to reach out to people that way. One of one of I think the uh, the areas that might be you know under. Um, underappreciated in, in a lot of this work toward health, and but it was seen in the blue zones again, is that these, um, these friendships, these, um, these connections within communities, and this, uh, this feeling of having, uh, having a purpose there that you're, you're giving to others, and, uh, and then also receiving from others, I think is really important uh, in terms of our, uh, of our mental health. So on a daily basis, I, I think about that, and I think about what you know, what I can do for others and, um, and how I fit into a community, which, um, which is, uh, you know, great for mental health. Well, people can find more about uh, the work that you do at obesitymedicine.org. You also have the new startup that you're at. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd love to. So I, uh, so in a true Silicon Valley, you know, uh, approach to, you know, to all things that would seem I, uh, I joined a medical uh, med tech startup a couple of months ago called the NARA Health. And as their chief medical officer and medical director, which has been uh, really, really exciting, uh, because we, you know, for what we discussed just now, Brian, we take that, uh, you know, that four pillar approach to, uh, to managing patients, and we do it in a way that we are available, uh, you know, uh, with a, a very multiple, multiple, multidisciplinary approach uh, to patient care. So there's the physician that you get. There's also a group of registered dietitians. We just brought on physical therapy, which I think is an important part, uh, you know, of uh, of helping people have 
pain-free movement, especially when you, you know, our patients with obesity. Uh, we have a, a, a behavioral uh, therapist who's on board too. And so there's all, you know, all of this uh, working together. We have an exercise physiologist uh, as well who works on strength training, uh, focuses on, uh, you know, on, on sarcopenia and, uh, and, uh, and reversing that in some of our older adults. So I feel super excited to, um, to be helping develop an application uh, or an app that, uh, that, is, uh, that is full service like that for our patients. Uh, and so there's an asynchronous and then a synchronous uh, you know, uh, physician appointment and RD appointment and all that uh, portion of it as well. Well, it sounds like you're doing amazing work, and I know you are over with the uh, obesity medicine stuff, and that app sounds really cool. Um, is that currently live, or is it still in beta? Um, no, it is. It's live. It um, uh, it's uh, Nara Health, and it's a membership. Uh, it, it, it's a, a membership uh, medical group where you know we give this multidisciplinary, um, very intensive behavioral therapy approach to um, to managing uh, to managing our patients. We're uh, in three different states now: Illinois, Texas, and of course California. And um, and uh, and it, it's and it's growing quickly, and it's uh, it's super exciting. You know, our patients will see a registered dietitian every single week, then uh, then an exercise physiologist, and uh, and their physician. And and, uh, and I feel in many ways that we sort of crack the code for um, for not only weight loss, but weight maintenance, because one of the biggest areas here is, you know, it, many people can lose weight, uh, but you're dealing with physiology and metabolic, you know, dysregulation and imbalance. And so, uh, you know, the the name of the game is weight, weight loss and then maintenance. And so our patients maintain uh, the results uh, for uh, for years and years. And, uh, and that is really great for me to see that we're reversing, uh, you know, we're reversing their, uh, their chronic conditions that they've had and, um, and keeping them healthy for many years at a time. Well, Lydia, you're doing great stuff and we need a lot more people like you. So it's awesome that you're also training other practitioners to do this type of stuff as well. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this. It's been my absolute pleasure. I hope you are able to take these pillars of weight loss and apply it to yourself if you are trying to lose weight. And people working in obesity medicine clinics see some phenomenal transformations occur with the patients and clients they work with, and they've learned a lot about different triggers that can stimulate weight gain. And remember, you can always go back and re-listen to this episode to hear the information again if you didn't get it the first time. Next week, Cynthia Kane will be joining me, so let's go learn who she is. I am here with Cynthia Kane. Hey, Cynthia, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? Mm, most people don't know that I lived in Madrid for about seven years, and I wrote a hiking guide book while I lived out there. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your favorite hike? <laughs> My favorite hike is um, in Manzanares. It's, I mean, it's just one of the hikes that's in the park there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the area is just phenomenal. And we started a guiding company too. So if you go to Madrid, you can check out hiking in the community of Madrid and they still go out every weekend. It's like a little intercambio. It's awesome. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, wh what will we be learning about in our interview together? Well, we'll be learning about how to be in difficult interactions and ways that um, you can navigate those a little more easily. We'll learn about... Um, how to allow other people to speak without us interrupting and learn a little bit about um, how to 
you know, connect with ourselves differently in these moments too. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Mm, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think that water, even though you might not consider that a food, I think water is very important. Um, also uh, protein. And um, I, I also believe tea. More liquid. I'm more of a liquid type of person, I think. What's your uh, favorite tea? So I'm really loving this uh, lavender chamomile tea. Mm. It's really quite delicious. And then what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Uh, meditation, sleep, and uh, being outside, walking in nature. Communication is a huge part of everything we do. And I've noticed how hard it is for people to have open conversations with each other. You'll definitely want to listen to that episode. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.